0: turn to Psalm 103. I was noticing some interesting similarities between how Psalm 103 begin and end, uh, but also and, and also Psalm 104. But uh, there are a number of these psalms here in the early 100s that are um, calling on God, uh, well, calling people, rather, to praise God, give thanks, all of those sorts of things. So I think as as we come down toward the end of the year and what we tend to think of as a time of year for Thanksgiving, even though all year long is an opportunity for Thanksgiving, I think these are appropriate psalms for us to be considering. And so, uh, we will start, as we typically do, uh, with some of the poetic devices that we see. So, for example, in verse 1, what do you see as far as a phrase that is poetic, description, or uh, those sorts of things? Okay, yeah. So, if you say, soul bless the Lord, what is he saying? God is worthy of praise and worship, and um, the soul is clearly not the entirety of the person, right? So we have kind of a figure of speech where a part stands for the whole person, right? So if you say, soul, bless the Lord, you're saying, I need to praise God with all of who I am, right? Okay. Verse 4, where it says, God crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. What do we think that means? Okay, yeah. Other thoughts, Eric? The ability for us to have loving kindness and compassion is bestowed upon us by God. It's not something we can foster ourselves. Yeah, it's either God's loving kindness and compassion is poured out on us, uh, and that's the crowning with loving kindness and compassion, or... Because God has loving kindness and compassion, he bestows on us the ability to express it in ourselves. And we see both ideas in Scripture, so it's not that either of those would necessarily be unbiblical. So, okay, um, For that matter, redeeming your life from the pit would be saving your life probably physically, right? We tend to spiritualize that, like in Psalm 40, I think it's Psalm 40 where it says, uh, you brought me up out of the pit of despair. We tend to make that a figurative sort of a thing, out of the pit of sin, like the Pilgrim's Progress kind of idea. But in reality, I think he's actually saying, God saves me, right? And there's not it's not incompatible with the idea of God saving us from sin, because sin is a mire and destruction and all that as well. But I think a lot of these things, I don't think that David and others tended to draw as harsh a line between physical salvation from enemies and devastation and spiritual salvation from sin and all of that as we tend to today. We tend to see those as very separate things and they would go kind of seamlessly back and forth between the two ideas. Uh, How about verse five where it says, uh, your youth renewed like the eagle. I'm gonna quote that a lot from Isaiah 40, but what does that actually mean? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. What's that? Uh, no, I think Bob didn't want us to sing the song that's like, You Lift Me Up So I Can Walk on Mountains or whatever that goes. All right. Uh, verse 7. God's ways as not like God's highways. What is it what is it referring to? Yeah. His word and his truth. His dealing with us, his word and his truth, James? When it comes to Moses, I think just <clears throat> showing uh, show Yeah. So in the way that Paul uses the word walk in a bunch of his letters, Paul's saying live this way. And so there's a sense in which the life of God is expressed to Moses, for example, like you pointed out in verse 7, okay, what God does. Uh, Verse 8, when it says God is slow to anger, that's sort of a poetic way of saying what? Use a shorter word if you would. Patient, yeah. Long-suffering is a good word, right? But God's patient with us, right? Um, And long-suffering actually probably illustrates it a little bit better, even though it's a longer word, but... Um but uh yeah, yeah, so this idea of patience, long suffering, okay? Uh verse 9 where it says God will not always strive with us. What is that striving referring to? Yes. Are you saying that Paul says you with us walking with God? Okay. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think potentially we could take it that way. Uh, Look at the next phrase there. Nor will he keep forever um, his anger. Now, the words his anger are supplied. Like, there's an implication there. Those are not actually in the Hebrew. But I think they're legitimately there in light of verse 10, where it says, not dealing with us according to our sins or rewarding us according to our iniquities. And so, if God is not striving... Uh, I think we have to go all the way back to Genesis 6 where God says, I will not strive with man forever. His days are, uh, what was it, 120 years? Let's see what it says. Mm. Yeah. Genesis 6, verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. I think it's kind of this idea that there's a time limit on God's patience and also on God's wrath, right? So depending on the context, all right? Here I think it's focusing on being a time limit on God's wrath toward his people despite their sinfulness. In Genesis 6, it's a time limit on God's patience. As long as Noah is still building the ark, people still have this opportunity. As soon as that's done, the flood comes. Jonathan? Hmm. It would be interesting to do a word study maybe in the original language, but I mean it's more than just uh there's something more there on other shots. Okay. Looking at the verses prior, I think it's like now he's not always gonna be there to guide us. Alright, so let's look at the the word is. Sandra, you had something there while we're looking this up? yeah i so here's one caution that i would throw out with regard to word studies and i'm not saying that's wrong uh but the word chide does mean to scold or rebuke but i think there's potentially an issue that we could get to if we start with the hebrew word and then it's translated in english and then we look up the definition of the english word and then we say and here's all the ways that that's used particularly when the definition of the english word potentially shifts from, say, when the King James was written in the 1600s and then the revision in the 1700s to now, um, because the etymology, the the background sort of history of the words meaning changes, uh, there's a possibility that we start at one point and we end at a different point. So I think probably, and this is getting really technical, I'm trying not to make it that way, but um, I think that it's helpful to think of words as having uh, the technical term is semantic domain, And the idea is basically like there's a range of meanings that overlap for a particular word. So uh, this particular word, the Hebrew word, uh, has meanings like um, strive, contend, agitate, disquiet, cry, shout, quarrel, clamor, etc. And then there are examples of this being against another person uh, involving bodily struggle. All of those sorts of things. So there's a question of with whom it is taking place. And uh, when it comes to something like contend or strive or agitate or be disquieted or quarrel noisily, those words are kind of, there's a lot of overlap between them, but they're not identical. And so we might be tempted to look at the verse and just say, well, it's one of those, we'll just grab one of them. But we have to think about which one of those meanings fits best in the context. And then there's the reality that dictionaries, we think, are prescriptive, like they say what the word has to mean, and in reality, they're descriptive, which is how was the word typically used at that point in time. Jonathan? Okay, I mean, I think I hear what you're saying. Um, like, that's what we're supposed to do toward one another. Um, He's striving with you. He's saying, look, I'm trying to point you in the right direction. and At some point, I'm just going to have to correct you. For now, I'm, I'm trying to hold back. I suppose, yeah, so going back to the Genesis 6 parallel, which I think is probably one of the closer parallels. Noah is a preacher of righteousness, reminding the people of his day what God wanted of them. God sets a time span for the duration of how long he's patient with them until judgment comes. They have an opportunity to repent within that window. And then to the extent that they don't, the flood comes and carries them all away. So, yeah, if that's what you're meaning, then yeah, yeah. Um, All right, let's keep moving for sake of time unless there's any other quick questions on that point. Okay. Um, Verse 11. uh, As high as the heavens are above the earth, we like to quote these verses, but what does it actually mean, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's loving kindness toward those who fear him? Okay, infinite. All right, can you, Sandra? What's it? Endless? Okay, yeah. Um, if we want to get really technical, you know, where is, the, where is the line between the atmosphere and outer space? Someone have to remind me. 80,000 feet? I want to say it's 80,000 feet. I could be wrong. It's It's way up there, right? But then there's a sense in which heaven is not like just when you get to outer space, but it is where God is. And so there's a sense in which it is an intangible thing. Like you can't just fly an airplane or a spaceship up to where heaven is. And so there's a sense at which you can't ever find the boundary. So yes, endless, infinite, God's loving kindness is not limited in the way that ours is, okay? But then verse 12, similar kind of idea as far as the east is from the west. How do you find the boundary between east and west? Uh, on a circle? On a circle. You don't, you don't, because by the time you get back around, you're at the beginning again. Yes? I read an article one time, biblical teaching. Yeah. Hmm. It's an interesting... uh, That's true, I think, but that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Okay. Good. So the point of that would be this is something we can't reach, so when God has dealt with our sins, He's actually dealt with them, right? It's not like... and, And really quick point, because I think this is really important in the concept of forgiveness. God is perfect and has complete knowledge of everything, which means when God forgives our sins, he does not forget them, he chooses not to remember them. The distinction is really important. You and I sometimes feel like if we're going to forgive sin, we have to forget that it ever happened. But the point is not that we forget that it ever happened, the point is that we're not dwelling on it and bringing it up and making an issue about it over and over and over again if we've actually forgiven someone. Not that we just sort of wipe our memory and then act like it never existed. And actually, that's harder, right? if you could get bumped on the head hard enough so you had amnesia and didn't, forget, didn't remember someone's sin, you wouldn't be frustrated with them about it, right? But if you remember that it happened, but you choose not to bring it up against that person, that's a whole different level of actually dealing with it, right? Um, verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, what's the point of this figure of speech? What's the attitude of a good father toward his children? Yeah, And so God is giving us this imperfect illustration in terms of earthly fathers to show us what God is like. Verse 14 where it says he knows our frame. What does that mean? How we're made? made. made? He made He made us. So our frame is like our limitations and our capacities as human beings, right? So God knows that. And so the next phrase, we are but dust. God sort of Mm, restrains his power and his judgment so many times throughout the Bible because, you know, think about what Moses says. I want to see who you are. And God says, if you even just see me in all my glory, you're going to be obliterated, right? So he lets him see sort of the aftermath of his glory as he passes by, okay? Uh, You know, thinking about the hurricanes and things that have been in the news a lot lately, it's as though, you know, God says, I'm like the hurricane you can feel the, the tail end of the wind as it's gone through, but you cannot be in the full force of the wind or you'll die, right? That kind of idea. Uh, verse 15, uh, like grass as a flower, how does this illustrate, what does this illustrate about humanity? Temporary, Temporary okay. Okay. Feeble. Feeble. What's also true about grass and flowers? We tread upon them, they fade. Okay, one, one more idea that I think we often miss. There's beauty to it, right? It's short-lived, it's fleeting, but it doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that there is beauty in the life that God gives to us. Okay? Um, verse 17, God puts his loving kindness on those who fear him. What does it mean that, God, that God's loving kindness is on us? Okay, looks favorably. Uh, This is connected with a promise that he's made. That word loving kindness is tied very closely to the idea of covenant in the Old Testament. So God makes a covenant with the people of Israel, and so his favor rests upon them, even though they often don't deserve it. Um, Verse 18, where it says, remember his precepts. What does that mean? Okay, and it's remembering not just in terms of facts, but... Obeying them, yeah. So we know them, but we know them and intend to follow them, right? It's different than just, you know, we could quote them in a, in a trivia game kind of thing, okay? Uh, verse 19, uh, God has established his throne in the heavens. What does that mean? God is what? If his throne is in the heavens, God is, what's that, sorry? Okay, he's omnipresent. That's definitely true. He's sovereign. God's the king, right? He rules, right? So if his throne's in the heavens, the, you have a throne because you're a king, right? And his throne is in the heavens because he's exalted, right? And then verse 22, all you works of his. What does he have in mind when he says that? His creation, yeah. Yeah, probably everything God's made, right? So all you works of his, particularly his people, but even everything, okay? What are some repeated ideas that we see here? Okay, bless the Lord we see in 1, 2, 20, 21, and 22. Okay, what's another grouping of ideas that we see? Favor, loving kindness, we could put the word compassion, benefits, we see some variation of that basically from verse 3 all the way down through verse 14, okay? Patience, Patience. okay, yeah, that would definitely tie in with that idea as well, okay? What about toward the end of the chapter, um, if we have this uh, picture of dust, grass, wind blowing... And then we have everlasting to everlasting. God is established. What, what kind of contrast do we have here? Yeah, there's a contrast between God and man. God's power lasts. Man's power fades, even our very existence, right? Okay, infinite, finite, yeah. Eternal, fading, all those sorts of ideas, okay? We'll come back to the structure here in just a moment. What type of psalm do we feel like this would be? Yeah. It could be Thanksgiving, and um, the question I think would come down to, um, if we go way back to sort of the descriptions that I gave you a long time ago, and I should probably just uh, you know, put those on the back bulletin board or give you another handout to keep. Thanksgiving, as far as in a formal definition by a lot of people who study the Psalms when they're trying to group them, Thanksgiving tends to be tied to a specific action that God did. So God delivered David from the Philistines. That's a psalm of thanksgiving because he's thanking God about a particular event, right? Whereas this is more broadly praise because even though it references things that God did, his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel, there's not a specific incident it seems like he has in mind. He's just saying praise God for everything that he's done. So I think probably thanksgiving would be like a subcategory of psalms of praise, right? I think... And at the end of the day, uh, the genre is less important than that we understand the components of the psalm itself, but I think it's still helpful because a lament has a different tone than a psalm of praise. Some truths about God. There's lots that we could pull out, but some of the really big, important ones. Okay, God's eternal, Eternal. all right. Okay, eternal or infinite. infinite. Okay, that's also true. Uh, He's the creator, Uh uh-huh. Let's, let's pull on that idea a little bit more. God's close. God does, shows what toward us? Love, and kindness. Love kindness, compassion, like all those ideas, yeah? Because that's a really big thing in this psalm. Um, now, the reality is a lot of these psalms have a lot of truths that we see in a lot of the other psalms, but there's usually one or two they're really focusing and zooming in on. I think here it's God's compassion alongside God being eternal. What are some things that are true about us? Okay, we're finite. We fade quickly. Something like that. Yeah. If we go to verses three through five, there's this idea of God having given us certain gifts, right? What is the point of blessing God according to this psalm? Like, why should we do it? He's worthy. But in what way is he worthy? James? From three to five, he feel all. Yeah, so I think we're blessing God because of his compassion and his kindness toward us, okay? All right, let me kind of bring these ideas together here for just a few minutes, and then we'll go to our prayer time. If you are going to mm, tell somebody about a person that you're really close with, um, it would be different from telling about someone that you learned about like in a history class at school, right, so let's just grab some random person like Woodrow Wilson, you could say, well, he was the president of the United States and he lived in the 1900s and he was president around the time of one of the world wars like those kind of things those are just facts right but if you're talking to someone about someone you really love what are you going to say you're going to start saying here are all the things that you're excited about that person about right not where the person was born not necessarily even what job they do although that might be part of it but more who the person is right and so in this psalm when it says bless the lord there's sort of a calling to mind all of the reasons that the psalmist, David in this case, is excited about God's blessing on his life, and the only proper response is to God's blessing is to bless God. Now, as we've talked about before, blessing God is a strange thing to do from the sense that you and I can't really add anything to God by blessing him, right? Because we tend to think of a blessing as something that comes on us and now we have something that we didn't have before. So if we bless God, that's not the case. We're not adding anything to God. What is most likely the closest parallel of, of our experiencing blessings and God experiencing blessings is the the change that happens in the minds of the people that hear us doing this toward God, right? So when we bless God, people's concept of God is expanded and corrected and directed toward God in a proper way. And so, you know, let's say, going back to the illustration I gave you a moment ago, let's say it's your wife or your child or whoever else. That person, maybe someone doesn't know anything about that person. And then you list off all of this person's good qualities. Now the person who's listening has a more proper understanding and appreciation for the one that you're describing. That's what happens when we bless God. We're telling of all of his good qualities and his actions to other people so that they then become excited about and encouraged by and just their minds expanded in their awareness of who God is. And specifically in verses 1 through 5, this is something we're supposed to do with all our being. So verse 1, "...all that is within me, bless his holy name, forget none of his benefits." So we're supposed to bless God with all of who we are and forgetting none of the good things that he's done for us, okay? And then all of the reasons are sort of listed in verses three through five. Pardons your iniquities, okay? Pardon, you know, um, just taking that at face value without going back and looking at all the Hebrew like we did with the other word about uh, strive in verse nine. Uh, Pardoning your iniquity, is basically God deals with your sin. Healing all your diseases, again, we tend to take this and say, well, healing all of your diseases is a primarily physical thing, and it is in the sense that when we look to the New Testament, Jesus heals people of things like being unable to speak, being unable to hear, being unable to see, or even being dead. And yet he links it very closely with his ability to forgive sin. Because Jesus can forgive sin, Jesus can also deal with the consequences of sin that manifest themselves as the diseases and brokenness of this world. And so I think sometimes because we've seen preachers on TV or all these other people take this idea and run with it in an unbiblical way, even a heretical way, we tend to like push aside and very much minimize the idea of healing of diseases Because we're like, oh, well, if you get better, then it's because you took some kind of medicine or you changed your diet or there's some action that you did. And we sort of push God being involved in that out of it because of the way that people have misused God's name in all of their nonsense connected with this. But the reality is God can heal from disease because God forgives from sin. If God couldn't do one, he couldn't do the other. They're, they're, they're very closely tied together. In Isaiah 53, which I think we tend to get hung up on, he heals all your, by his stripes we are healed. We tend to want to gloss over that phrase because it creates problems sometimes for our theology. But if we look at verse 3, God is the same God who heals people and who deals with their sin. And the reason that there is a need for healing is because there's sin in the world. So we would expect him to be able to take care of both problems redeeming your life from the pit, crowning you with loving kindness and compassion, satisfying your years with good things. These are all sort of um, benefits that God gives that are connected with that initial, if God deals with your sin, then you've been redeemed, you can experience and show forth his loyalty and compassion, and you can actually enjoy life. If your sin isn't dealt with, and if you die in your sin, There's no way for you to experience the things that verses 4 and 5 talk about. You can't really enjoy life. You can't really show loyalty and compassion to others. You can't really be delivered from evil, which probably echoes something like Psalm 23, which is very familiar for us. Second part of this, bless the Lord as you remember his compassion. And that as you remember his compassion is the bulk of the psalm from verses 6 down through 18. We see, first of all, that God acts righteously and justly for his people from of old i mean going back to their history god delivered them in the time of moses god delivered them from egypt he showed himself to the sons of israel we see that in verses 6 and 7 but the reason that he did those acts is because of who he is god restrains his anger and shows compassion on sinners we see that from 8 down through honestly verses 8 verse 18 We see, first of all, in verse 8, that God's patient and keeps his word. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. There is this sense that his anger ends. Uh, This becomes very important for the people of Israel in exile because if God's anger against them did not end, there was no hope of them ever returning to the land. But God sets a time period. Seventy years, you'll be back in the land, at least to the people of Judah there were those from the nation of Israel that never returned to the land because they were more wicked and God had made specific promises to David and his tribe in ways that perhaps he had not to the northern tribes of Israel. So God's anger ends. And connected with that, he doesn't abandon his people even though they sin. verse 10, he's not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We read a verse like that and we set it alongside something like Paul says in Romans where we receive the... uh, just reward of our sin, and we say those two things are a contradiction. How can God not reward us according to our iniquities, and yet he judges and rewards every man according to what he's done? And the answer to that, I think, is that for those on whom God has set his favor, they don't deserve it, and if it was only on the basis of what they had done, they would face God's judgment. But to the extent that God intervenes pardons, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies specific people or groups of people, to the extent that God does that, they don't receive what they deserve. I think that's what verse 10 is getting at. For those people, what does this look like? God's compassion is exalted, it's extensive, and it's parental. So, verse 11, it's exalted. God's compassion, loyalty, kindness is as great as the heavens are above the earth. We already talked about that. It's so high we can't even begin to imagine how great of a distance it is. It's a picture that there is no limit to the abundance of God's grace and mercy. His loyalty has no end because it is not based on, hey, I got upset with you today, so I'm done with you, or that kind of thing. God's character doesn't change. Verse 12, As far as the east from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. The transgressions and the consequences of those transgressions, God is able to deal with both so that we no longer want to sin and so that the consequences of our sin have been addressed in Jesus. Now, we're talking ultimate consequences. There are sometimes in-time consequences that we face, right? So if you steal, sometimes you still go to jail, even if you trust Jesus in between when you steal and get sentenced, right? But as far as you're standing before God, God doesn't hold that act of theft against you in a way that means like at the end of Revelation 21 and 22, outside are the thieves and the immoral people and those who worship um, demons and all of that sort of thing. Verse 12, when I say it's parental, just like a father shows compassion to his children, God shows compassion to those who fear him. And then verse 14, I think, is an introduction to the idea that's expanded in 15 through 18. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. This links what comes before and what's about to come at the end of the psalm. We need compassion, and God shows it to us knowing that we are weak and limited and finite and cannot stand before his judgment. So then all these pictures, verse 15, short-lived but beautiful like grass or flowers, gone as with the wind, verse 16. This is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes we get stuck on, certain translations have the word vanity, and the word that we should see when we read Ecclesiastes is something like breath. Your life is... Short, fleeting, gone. not evil, but just really quick. So that parallels very closely what we see in verse 15. And then verses 17 and 18 is this idea that God endures in faithfulness to those who belong to Him, even though they are breath, even though they fade quickly, even though they don't deserve His compassion, God does not change, and God continues to show compassion to them. Bless the Lord for His kindness. Bless the Lord as you remember His compassion. And then bless the Lord with all of creation. Verses 19 to 22. The Lord established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. God rules. And then verses 20 through 22. All of creation is to bless him. Angels, you're mighty. You are his messengers and his servants. Verse 21. His hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Uh, God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. This could be another reference to angels. It could be a reference to, um, sometimes the word host refers to the hosts of heaven, um, so, as in like the sun, moon, and stars, and all the aspects of the universe that serve him. Um, sometimes it refers to like an example of Cyrus serving him and his armies accomplishing God's purpose. Regardless of that, angels, hosts, And then verse 22, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. So without exclusion, everything that God has made ought to bless the Lord. And then he returns to this refrain and makes it very personal. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we say, bless him all of creation, angels, armies, creation, and me. So, children of dust, bless your compassionate and eternal God. Let's go to our time of prayer.